Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, welcome Mitch Troutman to an episode on history. This time, we are going into the topic of the 1930s Pennsylvania Dutch and Polish Coal Bootleggers. Mitch's book is titled The Bootleg Coal Rebellion, The Pennsylvania Miners Who Seized an Industry, 1925 to 1942. Mitch co-founded the Anthracite Unite organization, which is a working class collective, and co-founded Put People First Pennsylvania. His labor and community activism are noteworthy, and he also is part of a Hershey's campaign. Mitch has also worked on a variety of other grassroots journalism projects. Is there more to your history of organizing that we should know about, Mitch? Um, I mean, I've done lots of little things that always that haven't always worked out necessarily, but, uh, you know, um, put people first Pennsylvania. I was uh, setting up different uh, like county organizing committees to fight for universal health care. And I was doing that in Northumberland and Schuylkill counties, which is primarily where this book takes place and also where I'm from. So it kind of gives me uh, this background of having a community mindset, thinking about how people get power and how they use power. When did you start writing your book and how is your history of activism part of it? Oh, wow. Um, I think I started writing my book about six years ago or so. Um, It was a long process. It took me five years uh, while I was working other jobs. And um, well, this wasn't a job, but uh, while I was uh, working jobs and also I enrolled in college while I was doing this. Um, Sorry, your second part of the question was, how has my activism influenced it? Yes. How how was your history of activism a part of, you know, writing the book and making it come become a reality. I was already reading a lot about the history of my area, and I was working on a blog while I was living in Northumberland County, just uh, kind of reflecting things in the area that to regular people there seem normal, but to regular people elsewhere seem kind of strange. And one of them was people's attitudes towards the land, specifically the old coal mines, uh, the land mostly owned by Reading Anthracite. And there was an attitude that, um, you know, this is ours. We can do with it what we want. Nobody particularly owns it. Uh, And I found that really interesting. And I just dug in a lot more, kept reading more history and heard the bootleg coal, leg. excuse me, heard the bootleg coal miners mentioned, but uh, couldn't find anything substantial on them. And so the more I dug, the more it seemed like, okay, I guess I should be the one writing this. Yeah, and talking about your writing, um, I noticed that a lot of it's been associated with with publications like the Jacobin and PM Press. Have you been approached by other places to publish some of your ideas? And also, are you familiar with AK Press? Yeah, so when I had this mostly written, I started submitting uh, proposals to all the different radical publishers I could find, AK Press being one of them. Um, And as I expected, I heard no from most groups, but then uh, PM Press said, yeah, we we really like to specialize in things about coal mining history, uh, labor history. 
And so, you know, that's how that got started. Now, PM Presses, actually, they got started as part of AK Press. They're sort of a spinoff that has a slightly different focus, but there's a lot of overlap. And speaking of Jacobins, how is immigration a part of the bootleg miners' uh, history, Um, especially Europe uh, and the Great Depression era? Just tell us more about, you know, immigration. Sure. By the time of the 1930s, by the time this uh, widespread bootleg mining kicks off, most people are first, second, or third generation immigrant. Um, There were the Irish who came around the time of the potato famine, also around the time of the U.S. Civil War, um, 1880s to 1900s, and even a little more so, you had a lot of Eastern Europeans as well as Italians who came over. And it was largely those families who were in these towns and bootleg mining. And the addition is the Pennsylvania Dutch, not talking about the Amish variety, um, who had been around for many more decades than that. And so they they were less immigrants, but they still primarily spoke their own language rather than English in the mines. Was bootleg mining at its height and only popular during the time that you researched? How far back? does it take us? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, As far as I can tell, um, illegal mining or mining on company-owned property to get your own coal uh, was a strike tactic. And the earliest I could find it mentioned was 1902 during the big strike then miners were doing it. But it's very possible it goes back before then. There was... um, A thing people did during strikes and during hard times was go to the coal banks, you know, the waste that the coal mines kind of tossed out onto huge piles, and they would pick through them and find usable coal. And while that was, you know, legally company property, it had been always accepted that the miners, that stuff had been docked from their pay. And so they felt that they owned it and children and the elderly and the poor would uh, pick from the coal banks. Now, this goes back as far as I can tell to when mining began, you know, so the property rights were never extremely strict, uh, but the companies didn't want people bootleg mining. So during these strikes, this was a, a contentious thing for sure. And what about coal mining in places such as Alabama or The question is, are you only interested in Pennsylvania anthracite? Yeah, I mean, I'm from the anthracite coal region, and it kind of has a a distinct history. A lot of the things that happened in the anthracite happened 30, 40 years later in the bituminous coal industries, um, such as uh, company towns and their eventual abolition. Um, The... The thing is, the bootleg coal mining really only happened in the anthracite, and that's for reasons of geography, really. Uh, Anthracite coal kind of, it's it's sloped. It's smashed like an accordion in the ground. So there's parts where it's flat, but there's parts where it's very steep. Whereas bituminous mines, they're uh, relatively flat. So people can use, today they use big machinery to go and get it. Whereas the anthracite, it still is hand mined in a lot of cases. Um, because it's very hard to access. And another reason is that anthracite coal is mostly used for home heating, whereas bituminous coal is mostly used for industry. So if you're running an illegal mine and you have coal that you can sell to people who need to heat their homes, you have a market. Whereas if you're 
trying to mine bituminous coal, if you were to do that illegally, you'd have trouble finding a customer because the railroads, U.S. Steel, people like that, they're not going to want to buy from you. You have a passage that's about lantern light, for example, in the mountains for secret meetings. Were there getaways for bootleggers? Where did they go for refuge or communion um, or even, you know, if they wanted to celebrate? Yeah. Um, so the, the lantern meetings in the in the hidden woods, you know, that's really from the Molly Maguire time, um, 1870s or so, when they couldn't form unions and they eventually turned to conspiracy to try to figure out how to make their situation better. But by the time of the bootleggers in the 1930s, see, the thing is the company mines closed down and that's why people started digging coal on their properties. And when the company mines closed down, they really closed also their systems of patronage within the towns. And so people were no longer reliant on the company. So this is a long way of saying bootleggers did what they did in the open, right? They, uh, they didn't need to meet in secret. They met at uh, churches and halls downtown in their, in their towns. Um, they celebrated in the bars when they reopened because there's some overlap with prohibition here. Um, but, you know, they celebrated all the places you might celebrate picnics in the park. You know, um, it was uh, they had so much community support that they they really didn't have to be secret about it. And what about the law? How did they avoid getting arrested or getting, you know, reprimanded by police? Yeah, that's the big question, right? So at first, uh, they had to deal with the coal and iron police who were paid by the company, employed by the company, but with the power of the state. But they frustrated the coal and iron police in a bunch of ways. Uh, One way was that for every mine, the company uh, arrested the miners and then blew the hole shut with dynamite. Uh, For every one time that happened, the police felt like another three or four mines opened that same day. Um, And then also there were only so many coal and iron police. And right around 1933, the government finally strips them of their right to act as regular police, basically demoting them to company guards. And uh, the bootleg miners kind of took this as a go ahead, you know, and they started resisting, resisting the company police. Um, fighting them back. And there were still some arrests, but a lot of time what they would do is uh, opt for a jury trial. And a lot of times the juries made up of local people would declare them not guilty. Now, they also had a truce that they established with the state government to keep the state police out. Sorry, my computer closed a second. And the truce basically said that, I mean, it was informal, Um, It was spoken out loud, but never written down like this. Uh, Their truce basically said as long as the bootleg miners didn't shoot and kill anyone, that the state police would consider it a labor dispute and stay out of it. And what about the bootleggers union? How was that formed and what were they doing to, you know, challenge or fight their opposition? Yeah, the bootleggers union... um, well, there were, there were actually a lot of them, and maybe about a dozen of them formed, all for different reasons, but all around the same time. Maybe they needed to negotiate with a landowner, right? Um, or maybe they were trying to hire lawyers to get people out of jail. There, there were all sorts of reasons, but ultimately they come together in an umbrella organization called the Independent Miners Association, and they do a bunch of things. They handle disputes amongst themselves, you know, for instance, who, who has a 
right to mine where um, they hire lawyers, especially lawyers who go out of state to deal with uh, arrests of truckers who are trucking the bootleg coal and selling it anywhere from uh, Baltimore to Connecticut. Um, they have a president who speaks in a public voice, you know, on behalf of the bootleggers and really asserts their, their one demand of the companies was reopen the mines because people wanted to go back to their good paying job, their safer job. Um, bootlegging was, was survival, you know, but they hoped that they could go back to the jobs that they had fought so hard to, to make better with their union with the uh, United Mine Workers. Um, and so the the union was there to constantly push that demand. Also the union, the bootleggers union organized uh, two different marches on Harrisburg where they brought 10,000 people down in the back of coal trucks and overwhelmed the Capitol. Does feminism have a place in your research and in this book? What about women bootleg miners? Um, or also the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union? Yeah, certainly. I tried to look through a feminist lens uh, where I could on this project, and what I found is that there were, well, first off, uh, families bootlegged together. The separation between home and work sort of dissolved when bootlegging uh, arose because the whole the whole family would be involved. The skilled miners would be the ones blasting using the dynamite, but people's uh, children would be up top cracking the coal, sorting it by size. Um, some women worked on the hoist, or some women did work below ground. There were even a few women who um, were partners in the bootleg mine in their own right, though I don't want to exaggerate how many that was. I, I suspect it was less than a dozen or so, but. When the when a miner died, it was customary that his share, quote unquote, in the bootleg mine uh, would go to his widow. And so that's how some of them ended up uh, working in bootleg mines on their own. But there was also a few cases of women who just for the same reason as any man decided to start bootleg mining, which is they needed money and they didn't have a better place to get it. Um, uh, can you ask the second part of your question again? The International Ladies Garment Workers Union, is that a part of what you, you're studying? Yes. So the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which a lot of the women in my family had been members of, um, they were established in the textile mills uh, in the area, which was the other big industry. But it never, even with the union, it never paid well enough to float whole families, you know, and that's why textile work kind of wasn't enough. But there were uh, a lot of instances of solidarity between the textile workers union and the bootleggers unions. Um, obviously, they were in the same, well, maybe not obvious, but they were part of the same families, part of the same community. And so when the miners would have, uh, you know, marches or things like that in town, they would they would get support from the garment workers uh, who would formally or informally come out to support them. Uh, also, I should say there were bootleg miners who were uh, working as volunteer organizers, helping organize more of the textile mills as well. Were there minority bootleggers or were they all mostly white? Yeah, um, there were. Uh, I wouldn't say in any large number. Uh, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, in Schuylkill County, had a few hundred uh, black people in the population who were always the 
the last hired and the first fired by the industry. And so there were, I found evidence of a couple of them working in bootleg mines, but often not treated that well. Uh, also, as I went through the, the census records and things like that, I found that while all the towns were a mix of a lot of uh, European ethnicities, you'd also have, uh, you know, I found that there were some Brazilians, you know, there were some Portuguese and Brazilians, uh, people from different countries who, you know, there's like a general arc and a general narrative, but then there's all sorts of individuals who found their way into things too. So again, I would say there were, weren't any like non-white minorities in any large numbers, but they were there. Can you tell us about the ancient order of Hibernians? Yeah, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, the AOH, uh, was a fraternal organization. I said was. I shouldn't say was because they still exist. Is a fraternal organization of uh, descendants of Irish immigrants in America. Um, they were. They did a lot to uh, support each other um, during the days uh, before unions came around, and then when um, when miners tried to organize unions and were eventually destroyed, uh, the company suspected that the AOH was harboring um, the Molly Maguires and labor organizers. And so the attack on the Molly Maguires, that many people say it was an attack on the AOH because many of the AOH leaders were executed in 18, yeah, the 1870s. And so when did the history of mining or when did bootleg mining start to slow down? I know it's still going on, right? Well, my book ends at World War II, which partly because you have to end somewhere, right? But the the draft, all these people are listed as unemployed, so many of them get sent off to war. Also, factories are retrofitted to produce war materials, so there's a lot more employment. So there's very little bootlegging during the, uh, during the World War II years. Afterwards, people do come back and open bootleg mines again, but it never reaches the size that it did during the 30s. Um, And there are some people mining in this way today, but by the 70s, most people who had been bootlegging had acquired leases, and so they were allowed to be on the property they were on. So today we call them independent miners, but they still use a lot of the same methods, um, it's dwindled. There's only, to my knowledge, about three underground mines left that are working in this way. But they're, they're family mines. Uh, they're going underground. They're working by hand often. Um, their hoists are still often run by uh, the engines from cars. You know, it's a very uh, highly skilled uh, but kind of DIY industry that's on its last legs. And who are the king of the bootleggers? Michael Kazura and David A. Lucas, and also the Independence Today bootlegging. Okay, so uh, I've heard David A. Lucas called uh, King of the Bootleggers a couple times. He was um, a bootlegger who started in the 1950s or so. His family had been bootleggers. Uh, and he mines, he becomes an independent, he works on uh, leased properties. He claimed to be the world record holder for mine safety, saying that he had gone something like four decades without any accidents in his mines. Um, he unfortunately passed away in a car accident recently, but he was someone who was able to share a lot with me about 
how bootleg mining worked and just kind of what the attitude was. And he also put on the annual coal bootleggers picnic where descendants of coal bootleggers all gathered together in this one park once a year and had a big, you know, barbecue picnic and things like that. Michael Krizora was the child of bootleg truckers. And he was actually someone who tried to write a book about bootleg coal mining in the late 80s and early 90s. He had gone around and he recorded interviews with about 40 different people who had been alive in bootleg mining during the 30s. And this was the last of them, right? There's still people alive today who were born in 32 or what have you, but not really miners. They don't tend to live as long. And so he interviewed some of the last living miners. But unfortunately, he also died in a car accident in the early 90s. And so the reason I dedicate my book to Michael Pizzora is because I managed to track down his widow, Ingrid, who had all of his materials and shared them with me. And the book is really written around the miner's own experience and perspective. And all that is from those interviews that Michael Kozora did. So uh, I owe him a, a debt to the, for this book. Also, were protests happening about bootlegging? And were they mostly for bootlegging or against bootlegging? Well, there weren't really any out-and-out protests for or against bootlegging. I mean, there weren't any protests against it, that's for sure. Um, The bootleggers would protest in Harrisburg if they had, uh, you know, if there was a law that was threatening them. They would protest at the courthouse if someone was arrested under an injunction or something like that. And then they would do a little bit more than protesting, too. Sometimes when the company brought in strip shovels to try to destroy the bootleg holes, they would uh, ring the fire whistle in town and everybody in town would come out and surround that shovel and prevent it from going in. And about a dozen times that I've found, they also uh, blew it up or lit it on fire. But those were all uh, pro-bootlegging actions. There really weren't many regular people opposed to bootlegging. Who were some of the figureheads or leaders of the bootlegging movement at the time? There's one figure who I really wish I knew more about, and his name was Earl Humphreys. He was a local cop at one point. He also worked for the poor board, which you can kind of think of as the welfare office. It's the closest comparison we have today. In any case, so he was this official person. Uh, But he turned to bootleg mining, like many other people who needed some work in the early 30s. But the thing about him was he only had one leg. He had lost a leg in a mining accident, um, but continued to bootleg mine anyway. And so when the bootleg unions got formed, Earl, uh, they respect him so much that he is elected the president. And I don't know if you can picture, but... If you're in a room filled with hundreds and hundreds of miners who are doing things illegally, uh, you gotta you got to be a special kind of person to win the respect of all those people. And so he was a spokesperson. He continued mining for a little while, but then eventually was the spokesperson for the miners full time um, and would travel you know, to different places where he was needed. Uh, and I just told you basically everything I know about the man. I really wish I could find more because he sounds like a really interesting guy. And the New Deal. How did politics, especially at the federal level, change things for bootleg mining and for coal miners just in general? 
Um, in the anthracite region, I wouldn't say the New Deal affected mining specifically. Uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, there's the WPA and other government programs to try to put people back to work. And so some people did scoop up work that way, especially building roads. You know, before this time, a lot of roads are dirt and the the New Deal helps pave America. You can think of it that way and do other projects like building all the, uh, the really cool um, post offices that we still see today, things like that. But the New Deal didn't really do anything too specific for the miners. And what was the Lehigh Coal and Navigation Company, and why is it associated with Panther Valley? Yeah, there, there's about 10 large companies, and one of them is the Lehigh Coal and Navigation Company. And they own the land that's in the Panther Valley, which is a stretch of four or five towns. Um, and those people were able to do something really specific there because one company controlled all of them in this geographic area. Um, rather than bootleg coal, which was the, there was little to none going on in the Panther Valley, they ran uh, an equalization campaign. So what that meant was they wanted, instead of half the people getting fired, they wanted everybody to be reduced to half time and to share the work amongst everyone. So it was unity between the employed and unemployed miners. And the way they would do that, aside from demanding it and some protests and things like that, is they would print the work schedules in the newspaper. And if any one coal mine had a lot more hours that week or that month than everybody else, they would go on strike until everybody else was able to catch up. Uh, and that was a unique situation, but it was able to sustain them through the through the Great Depression. Were there bootlegging accidents that you want to tell the audience about? Um, there were so many bootleg accidents. I talk about them in the book, but only enough to give you the picture that they were going on. But really, they were frequent throughout this whole period. Um, there were obviously a lot of dangers to mining, period, uh, and then bootleg mining specifically. Sometimes you had people working who uh, didn't have much mining experience. Um, a lot of times you had people working who didn't have maps, and that was a big thing because when you're tunneling down from the surface, you can run into old mines that you didn't necessarily know were there, right? So the floor could open underneath and you could fall a great distance. Or one that's particularly scary to me is if you're mining sideways and you run into an old mine, if that mine is flooded, you get hit with so much water almost instantly. Um, and there were, there were a lot of other accidents too. And so what the miners would do, everybody in a town and maybe the neighboring towns too would stop and go to the rescue. Nobody would operate their bootleg mines until they got that person out or in the case of a fatality until they found that person's body, which they almost always did. Um, and there was even some sympathy around this from the companies, not from the Wall Street level of ownership of the companies, but the, the managers of the local mine and things like that where they were still operating. They had sympathy. They didn't, they didn't want somebody to die underground, whether it was with the company or not with the company. And so they would also bring their equipment uh, out to try to help the rescue. Uh, Funny thing, well, I don't know about funny, but interesting thing I found when crunching the numbers, though, is bootleg mines were a, just barely more dangerous than company mines. So there were a lot more accidents underground in the bootleg mines, but they typically hurt one, maybe two people. 
Whereas company accidents could typically hurt a whole lot of people at once. And another way people got hurt working for the company was all the above ground machinery. There was a lot of people getting mangled and killed in the above ground machinery. And so for different reasons, they end up both being just about equally dangerous work. The topic, the topic also of the Latimer massacre and then reading about things happening in places like West Virginia, are those events a part of bootlegging too, aside from accidents? Um, I mean, the Latimer massacre and things like that are part of the bootlegging history, and it's a big – I mean, they were able to form bootleg unions and have this kind of solidarity because they already had that mindset – and that mindset was really established in places like Latimer, where they realized around 1902 that if there's going to be a union in coal, it can't be a Polish union and an Italian union and a German union. You know, they need to bridge their differences and work together. And that's how they finally won the United Mine Workers in 1902. Now, there weren't any... Um, there were, no, there were no such massacres that happened during the bootleg era, though. That's part of why there was a truce with the state government is because the government feared that if they came in and tried to sweep everybody out, that there would basically be a civil war. And the companies also had that fear, especially after some of their equipment was dynamited. They knew that the bootleggers could do a lot more damage than destroying one piece of machinery. Yeah, and so your machinery, the equipment... The fact that it could be so dangerous, can you tell us about some of the technology that bootleggers had access to? Sure. They were mining with anything they could find. You could say they were ripping up everything that wasn't nailed down and plenty that was too. Uh, They were ripping up old trolley lines. They would go into the closed company mines and take everything out that they could. They were timbering in the woods on company lands. Um, There was a lot of theft of uh, burlap sacks from farmers because burlap sacks were an easy way to transport coal. Um, I mean, their biggest uh, invention, you could say, was taking an old car, typically a Model T, removing one of the wheels, hooking up a wire to it, and using that as your winch to pull people and coal up and down the mine. You know, put it in drive to pull them up, put it in reverse to send them back down again. But... I mean, they were they were doing everything. They were using uh, uh, rain gutters to as ventilation shafts. They were linking up their mines in a, in a row underground so that they could ventilate through one side and out another. Um, some of these some of these methods are uh, good for safety and also dangerous in other ways at the same time. You know, double edged sword, but. It's impressive some of the things they came up with. Another one, a lot of them were using uh, two by fours for rails to push mine cars around on. It's it's pretty fascinating. And I'm sure some of these guys ended up getting sick. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, coal miners and black lung. You know, that's it. The coal doesn't. The coal dust doesn't care who you're working for. Uh, it, it gets in your lungs, and so. Yes, a lot of these coal miners do end up dying of black lung. Some are in the in the later years when black lung legislation finally comes around. Um, some are able to qualify for black lung benefits, although it's it's quite a fight. Who influenced you most, just as a historian, and also for? You writing this book, maybe friends, family, or scholars? 
Um, I would say, first off, I'm a big fan of autobiographies. Uh, I love reading history in that way, where you get the feelings, not just the events that happened. Um, as for scholars, uh, maybe my biggest influence is Mike Davis. Um, he writes about a lot of different topics, uh, historically and politically, but I'm always impressed that almost any sentence in his books you could spin off to be its own chapter, if not its own book. And that that inspires me. I didn't want to waste words in the book. And so, yeah, it's there, there's a lot in there. And is the anthracite region today depleted of its coal? No, the anthracite region still has a lot of coal in the ground. There's a few strip mines and, like I said, a couple uh, underground mines. But the deeper it is, the more expensive it is to get, basically. Um so there, there's a lot there, but it's either, yeah, really expensive to get or there's a town on top of it and you don't want to destroy the town to get to the coal. You're having an event at the Auto Bookstore in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. What other types of things can people expect from you if they wanted to meet you or get to know more about coal mining, bootleg coal mining? Yeah, um, I've done a series of events mostly in the anthracite region already. I have this one coming up at Auto Books, I believe, on the 15th. Um, and I would I would love to do more events. Um, if anybody's interested in having me come, I'd be happy to talk. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about bootleg mining, the anthracite region actually has a few different um, museums, and three of them will take you inside an old coal mine and show you what it looked like in there. Um, and one of them, Pioneer Tunnel, uh, in Ashland, Pennsylvania, actually has a replica bootleg mine that they'll show you and describe how it worked, too. Um, you can also follow me on uh, check out bootlegcoal.com or try to find me on different social media. I try to post different things. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to share. And after the reviews and other interviews of your book have happened thus far, do you think there's something missing in the popular discussion on this topic? What maybe hasn't been addressed um, that you want to speak about here at the New Books Network? Oh, I don't know. This is still a relatively new thing, and there hasn't been a book about this yet. So the main thing missing in popular discussion is just bootleg coal period. Um, there are, I, I'm excited to get tough questions, you know, and one of those tough questions to me is what exactly does this mean for today? Um, what does this mean about uh, work or building power or what is possible today? And I say that's tough because I don't really know the answer. Um, I tried to write this so that people could uh, make their own interpretations of what that means. And I'm excited to hear other people's responses to that as well. I mean, it certainly shows a power of solidarity. It certainly shows that uh, there was a time when working together with your neighbors was basically common sense. Um, and I've been saying this, but people back then, they didn't get along with their neighbors any better than we do now. You know, it's more that they just understood they were in the same boat. And so I'd love to see more of that attitude. And I think we are seeing it with a lot of this uh, organizing at Starbucks and Amazon and Home Depot and things like that. But I look forward to hearing other people's answers to that question after they read my book and think about it. Designated historical markers are sometimes interesting to look at. 
Are there any of those at the former mine sites in Pennsylvania? There are not for bootleg mining, and I would love to change that. Um, once I get some more of these events out of the way, then I want to start working with the people in a couple towns to get markers up for uh, for the bootleg mining, the events of bootleg mining. Um, but there are uh, plenty of his, uh, historical markers for other events that took place in the anthracite, like the Latimer Massacre that we were talking about. Uh, there's some stuff there. There, You know... I mean, Pennsylvania is really great with that. There's thousands and thousands of historical markers. You can find them almost anywhere. Um, and it's fun when you're passing through a place to stop and read one or two of them. Also, as a journalist, if you were alive during this time, what kind of news story would you craft? Um, or is there one that you want to mention that maybe inspired you? I mean, I'm, there's a lot that I'm inspired by. Um, that's what kept me working on this book and kept me writing is that it's just kind of incredible or unbelievable story after unbelievable story, which also meant for a lot of fact checking. Um, but only, it was only really the national journalists that did like kind of in-depth profiles. And the one thing I didn't see, couldn't find any of was basically a biographic profile, which, you know, I feel like you see in magazines a lot more today where it's like, yes, there's this bigger thing going on, but we're going to follow one person and see what their life is like and the conflicts in their life. Um, that's, that's the kind of journalistic story that I feel was missing from the time. Any final thoughts for the NBN audience? Uh, final thoughts is if you're listening, thanks so much for listening. Um, Thank you, Nathan, so much for having me. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to get to talk about this. I love podcasts, you know. I've been listening to them for years, and so it's really fun to finally be on this side of the the mic and the speaker. That's great to hear. This has been a podcast episode of the New Books Network with Nathan Moore interviewing Mitch Troutman, author of The Bootleg Coal Rebellion: The Pennsylvania Miners Who Seized an Industry, nineteen twenty five to 1942. To hear more episodes about history topics or literature, tune in to the New Books Network and stay up to date on all of the podcasts.